The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Has Bitcoin been bounced out of the financial mainstream? Can Intel turn its $15 billion autonomous driving acquisition onto the right road? These are the issues we'll be covering in this week's Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Anthony Curry, and I'm here with my colleague Jennifer Sabre. Hi, Jen. Hello. So first, let's tackle Bitcoin. It's just been given a big thumbs down from the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Just a few days ago, the watchdog turned down a long-standing application from the Winklevoss twins of Facebook fame to set up the exchange-traded fund linked to the cryptocurrency. So joining us to explain this situation is associate editor Tom Berkeley. Hey, Tom. Hey, Jen. What's going on? Why isn't there any love for Bitcoin coming out of D.C.? Well, they've had a long time to think this over. Uh, the original application was put in 2013. The current version dates to last July. They've extended it. Uh, the deadline period several times, and last Friday was the ultimate deadline. People thought with that kind of prolonged exposure that perhaps they were just trying to get comfortable with it. Maybe there were a couple of details that that needed tweaking. But it turns out the SEC doesn't like Bitcoin at all. Uh, most of their objections really were fundamental, not technical related to the Winklevoss structure. It was about the sheer liquidity, the the vulnerability of the market to manipulation, and the fact that most of the trading occurs in these unregulated uh, Chinese exchanges. So it's really opaque. Is, is that part of the... It's opaque. And, you know, it, again, the, there is no... Typically, when these types of commodity-type products and most of the backers of uh, Bitcoin ETFs try to cite commodities like gold and, uh, and copper as, as precedence for this, when new products have been launched... The SEC will ask the, the, the exchange that's listing the product to have sort of surveillance sharing arrangements with other markets so they can really have some kind of assurance that they can see what's going on. They can track any kind of insider trading or manipulation. In this case, most of the markets in China are un- or lightly regulated. Uh, the SEC has no purview over them. BATS Exchange, which is where the Winklevoss ETF would trade, has no way to enter into any kind of um, monitoring agreement with them. So in the absence of that, the SEC simply said, this is just not safe enough for retail investors. I mean, isn't this, I mean, this is the whole point about Bitcoin, though. It was right. It was set up precisely to avoid that kind of oversight. It's meant to be you know, loved by libertarians, not just your computer geeks, but those who think the government gets in the way too much. So to have you know, the regulator down in, in government central DC say no shouldn't really surprise anyone. I mean, why did uh, the Winklevoss twins and the other companies that are looking at uh, setting up a, an ETF think they would get anywhere? Well, I mean, uh, the Winklevi, they have their own exchange. Um, I mean, it's part of, we kind of put this in their broader strategy. Uh, you know, they took a lot of the money they got out of Facebook when they had their suit against Mark Zuckerberg to invest in, first of all, their own stash of Bitcoin, but also to build up, you know, what they consider their own sort of ecosystem. So they have a, an exchange, Gemini, that is one of the smaller exchanges here in the U.S. There's a handful of dollar-denominated exchanges that probably account for somewhat less than 5% of global trading. And their idea is, we have our own exchange. We can, uh, we'll, we'll, you can monitor our trading in real time. Uh, we'll be as transparent as we can be. And they really want to bring Bitcoin to the masses. They think it's become mature enough that, you know, 
retail investors or institutions should have the ability to get in it. It's, it's a diversification argument. The SEC just found all that very unpersuasive. And this is uh, an SEC that has an acting chairman who's pretty open to innovation and a diversification. So do you think that the fact that the there's sort of a, a change of control at the SEC now, will that um, is that the one who decided this, or was that from the old pre-Trump administration? Well, the acting chairman, Michael Puiwar, you know, he, he will still be there. He's his term, uh, it extends, I, I forget exactly when, but he does not go out. He's He'll be in there for He's a while. He's just a commissioner who's acting as... as exactly. As, as Jay Clayton has been nominated. He has a hearing coming up in a few days' time. Uh, presumably he gets the nod and gets on there. But there's nothing in this ruling. It would be a significant significant change to suddenly give a green light to a similar product. There are two other applicants in the pipeline. Uh, one of them, uh, Grayscale Investments, they have their own ETF that operates on the over-the-counter market, but that's very lightly regulated. Uh, that's something that you know, most retail investors and institutions will not touch. It's pulled in about $200 million over the past 18 months. But, you know, they're really hoping to go big time with a, a regulated product that can get the mainstream in. So what has this done to Bitcoin's Price. I mean, you'd think that any in any normal market, this would send the price way down. Did that happen? Well, for briefly, I mean, it dropped like a stone on Friday. This was announced at five o'clock on Friday, so it dropped more than two hundred bucks. Since then, it's come back up. It's now only modestly down from where it was before the decision. Now, there's two ways to look at that. One is that this is a, a mature market that can handle news like this. The other is that something that can move that wildly, you know, in a very short space of time, is not the ideal thing for a mainstream uh, you know, ETF product. Yeah, if it's meant to be, if the price is meant to reflect uh, some degree of value, then surely there is value lost from the decision not to allow an ETF, which if there's an ETF, then more ETFs, that ought to drive up the tradability, as you were saying, the liquidity, and therefore arguably demand for Bitcoin and therefore the price. So not to have that should really have a longer term impact than just a a day or three. Well, there's clearly speculative demand for it. I mean, Bitcoin, there's a number of things going in its favor. There's the libertarian argument, no government issues it. It's, it's you know, Uncle Sam or anyone else can't get their hands on it, so that's good. There's the ease of transaction argument. You know, people can, can buy and sell across borders. Of course, if the price can change 20% in the blink of an eye, it's hardly the kind of thing you want to be buying books, homes, whatever with. But the most resonant one, it seems to me, is speculative investment. There will only be, you know, 21 million under the protocol. 21 million Bitcoin can never be mined, but uh, about 16 million have already been mined. If you think this has got a future and there are plenty of people out there who do, you know, it's trading over $12,000 to $1,200 for Bitcoin today. It's gone from 200 to 1300 at various points over the last two years. Uh, if this does have a, a serious future in the 21st century financial landscape, uh, it could be double. Maybe it's 10 times as much in five or 10 years' time. But there is value in another part of the broader Bitcoin universe, uh, you'd argue. Very much. And that's the blockchain. That's the distributed ledger that actually supports it. That's how uh, people are able to transact Bitcoin with people they don't know. They can do it anonymously. And, you know, it's securely stored. At least the transactions are recorded. Whether or not it's securely stored is another matter because there have been these incidents of big theft uh, over the past few years. Um, and blockchain has been first kind of seen very warily by the mainstream as something that either is unreliable or it's going to disintermediate Wall Street. Over the past year, it's been embraced a lot more as something with real potential. 
And it's starting now to actually enter into tangible uses. We've seen the DTCC, which is the big clearing organization for the U.S. stock market, uh, enter into an agreement with IBM and a, and a small uh, blockchain startup to develop blockchain uses for clearing derivatives trades. They hope to actually bring that online in a year's time. So what's, what's the benefit of using a blockchain for this kind of thing rather than you know, the cloud or some kind of other uh, device, electronic device or electronic platform that we've already got in parts of the markets? Well, the idea, um, proponents say, is security, uh, its cost, its effectiveness. You know, you don't have to worry about T plus two or three days trading with uh, blockchain. Things are known pretty much instantaneously. And there's the buzz factor, frankly. Um, you know, it sounds, it's new, so it's presumably better. So, um, not quite RIP uh, Bitcoin, but very much a yeehaw to, to blockchain over the next couple of years, you think? Well, look, speculators can still go out there and buy Bitcoin. I Clearly, it takes uh, some technological knowledge or someone who has that for you and uh, some appetite for risk more than a lot of other instruments out there. And the underlying technology is being taken up uh, and... Um, and Main Street, if you feel it needs protection, well, I guess the SEC feels it's protected it. Okay, Tom, thanks very much for coming on the show. Great to have you explain all that, and we'll see you again soon. Thank you. Next up, we're allowing ourselves to be steered into the fast-growing world of self-driving cars. On Monday, chip giant Intel revealed it is buying autonomous driving parts maker Mobileye for $15.3 billion. That's a cool 30 times estimated revenue for 2017. Sound like a lot? Well, you'd be right. Here to navigate our way through the deal is columnist Rob Siren. G'day, Rob. Hey. So, tell us, Rob. Is this a good deal? Is this a bad deal? What are you thinking? We're going to have to wait several years to find out. Oh, um, come on. <laughs> yeah, wah, wah. <laughs> the thing is that we know that autonomous driving is coming. It's going to be a huge market. And it's not just autonomous vehicles. Um, so what's happening is computers used to be limited to what they could work on data you fed to them. Now they're getting very good at actually seeing things, in other words, sight and making sense of the world and manipulating it. And so that means more than just driving. It means like robots and other sorts of things where it are gigantic markets. Um, we don't know how big they are. Intel says $70 billion by 2030 or perhaps over $100 billion. Just for this part of the autonomous driving, right? It doesn't go into everything. Yeah, but, but the thing is yeah. when you're projecting out, you know, 13 years in the future, you're, you might as well just... You know, take crystal but they are, they are at least only sticking to autonomous driving. They're not going uh, whole hog like you were for everything under the sun could possibly <laughs> uh, be made to make money yeah, for. Yeah, they're, so they're trying to be. They're trying to be living. They're, but not, they're not quite as Elon Musk <laughs> of Tesla as as as, uh, as some might think. No, but what so what they're saying is they're buying this company, and and the rationale is pretty makes sense actually. Mobileye makes sensors for the car. Uh, Intel does some of the they, so the chips in the back in the data center. So they're saying, hey, if we combine the two and the two companies are actually already working together, then we can present a package, basically, of the, all the high-end important stuff to computer, um, to car makers. Right. And there's reason to think, you know, okay, not every car maker will be willing or able to make these sorts of things. So if you have one company, one company, Intel in this case, they th the thinking is, that makes these sorts of vehicles, you can, essentially, you can just plug into a vehicle, well, then, you know, they'll have a big market. 
Rob, I sort of lost track of Intel like after the whole chip revolution and the, the bunny commercial from like the from the late nineties. What? That was a is, long time ago. Yeah, exactly. So this is this is my starting point. But what are they still basically known for for computer chips and mobile chips and that sort of thing? Like well, your loss kind of explains their strategic position right now. Um, what they 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 were very good at. They had um, chips for computers, but they missed the mobile revolution, if you want to call it that, entirely. Um, your mobile device in your pocket does not have an Intel chip in it, or very few of them do. Um, so what they're doing is they're saying, okay, we can't afford to miss a gigantic market in the future. So they're trying to do M&A to try to get into what they see as potential markets. And they say, okay, cars are going to be a huge one. Every car is going to be have lots of chips in it. We need to be in that. And so that's why they're moving into this. And like you said, they've already been in, in the market doing things. In fact, as I understand it, what, what's happening with this deal, it's not so much that Intel is buying and folding Mobileye into something. They're actually going to say, ah, here, take the autonomous driving unit that we kind of got with the da- data processing that, that might be helpful, and you run it, Mobileye. Which actually makes a bit of sense. Um, Intel, the last, they've had some bad acquisitions. For instance, McAfee, the, the security company, they bought them, I think it was six years ago, paid about $7 billion for it. They just spun off a majority of the of that company in a deal worth about half that price. So they're not not necessarily the best M&A players. Well, yeah, like. but what happens Intel's a very big, well-run organization. The problem is a company like that, you know, you can't typically fold a startup into that. There's <laughs> just going to be a big culture clash. And there could be a clash here because Israeli companies have a reputation for being kind of freewheeling, you know, no respect for authority. Yeah. And that doesn't quite p- play as well with Intel. So letting them to run the thing may be actually a smart idea. Right. Uh, and so I've got to be honest, Rob, you are sounding far too uh, positive about this deal. It's just not like you to be this Well, generous. we haven't so, talked about price, have <laughs> well, we? Well, <laughs> exactly. So here we go. Let's get into the price. So at $15.3 billion, it's 30 times revenue, as you said. And this is a company that was already trading at pretty high multiples, largely because people are thinking, okay, we know autonomous driving is coming. These guys own 70% of the market at the moment, Mobileye does. That'll probably shrink, right? You've got a lot of other competitors there all coming in. So how do you get to make this deal make sense? Is it cost cuts? Well, they've had limited amount of cost cuts. The, we figure out the value of the cost cuts is about a billion dollars. That's they, they're paying a four billion dollar premium to just to acquire this, so it doesn't even come okay, close. That to doesn't it. do it. So, so how could they even cut? Co- I mean, if they're going to allow this thing to just kind of operate on its own, what costs are they cutting? There are some R and D efforts which are duplicative, and they've got some. You know, they they do have similar design teams they can cut. So even that target probably sounds high. It's 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 not actually that big for companies of these size. So is it, uh, as you're saying, you know, Intel's kind of missed a lot of the revolution in mobile. So I know they're starting to get some of their chips inside some of mobilized devices, but not by any means any, all of them. So is that a money spinner for them? Or, I mean, that's kind of internalized flow rather than anything. Well, they it? may. it's a small benefit for them to be able to run, uh, to produce more of the chips using Intel factories. Right. Um it's all about growth. They're all just making a huge bet on this, saying, okay, this is going to be a gigantic market in a few years. If we get, you know, if the company can continue to grow this fast, and, and Mobileye has very good operating margins and make a lot of profit. Okay, so talk us through that. So how fast is it growing? So it's growing about 45% a year, and the That's operating really margins, yeah, and the operating margins are about, um, almost about 40%, 35%. So this is like almost sort of top of the range for even for Techland. Yeah, but the problem is that because this is a gigantic market, everyone wants a piece of this pie. Um, and so growth rates will come down just because you know you com- companies don't grow at 40% market uh, revenue pace forever. 
But the big problem is that so many companies are competing for this, margins will probably go down as well because more companies figure out how to do this sorts of, make these sorts of devices or these um, modules, and that means there's more price competition. Now, it still gives them a little of leeway, right? So if, if, if growth and margins both halve, you've still got a double-digit growth company and you've got margins at 20%, which are pretty good. What does that mean for you know, getting back, I think you, as you put in the piece, you, the cost of capital is the thing to look for here. Well, the, the thing is, it's it's nice to have a company growing 20% and having 20% margins. However, if you're paying 30 times sales, you're paying for a lot more than nice, if yeah. you want to look at it that way. Um, we just did the math, and if they kept up the current growth rate and the current margins for five years, which is really incredible, few companies yeah. are able to maintain that kind of pace with those margins, then they're about earning their cost of capital, uh, about 10% return on the deal. If they make less or margins start to compress, well, then it starts to look a bit value destructive. All right. So you've got a long-term outlook for this thing if you're a shareholder, and you've got to hope that a number of things go pretty much spot on. In fact, that a lot of things don't change. So Intel, C- Intel CEO would be a different CEO by that point, so it doesn't really <laughs> matter. Okay, Rob, thanks for coming on. Great to have you on the show. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank my co-host, Anthony Curry, as well as our guests, Tom Berkeley and Rob Siren. And to our producers, Bethel Hopday and Andrew D'Antonio. And I'd like to thank you all for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Subscribe to the Views Room on iTunes and do share your opinions about our show. Tune in next week for another edition of the show. And thanks for joining us.